The gospel is the good news that by faith alone, your sin is imputed to Christ, and that by grace alone, his active obedience is imputed to you. Beyond just that simple statement, which has begun all of our messages through the series of Galatians, we have wanted to add to that a clarifying statement, something that perhaps might not be clear just in that uh, wording alone. And this morning, we're going to actually tackle a rather significant one and is going to comprise much more of the sermon than would normally happen on a Sunday morning. So prepare yourself for a slightly longer introduction. Because I think that what we should do this morning is bring up a very important question, and that is, what is the proper relationship between the new covenant Christian and the law? I think that now is the time, and this is the text, to deal with this issue, and I know full well that we're not going to be able to cover this in one message. This isn't going to be sort of a one-and-done kind of approach. This is something that's going to take us several weeks, and for some of you, it's going to be the beginning uh, of this exploration. For some of you, it's going to be a way to spur you on, and for others of you, it'll just cap off what you already know. Regardless of where you are in that progress, I ask you to just be patient with me as we work through it for the benefit of everyone. But this is really one of the most important issues facing people who I would say in, in today's culture would call themselves any or a combination of conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, born-again Christ followers. And I say that because for some group of so-called Christians, this is really not an issue at all. Uh, there are people who are part of the Orthodox Church or a part of liberal churches or a part of dead Orthodox denominations for whom this is absolutely no concern at all. There are others who are part of faithful, classical, historic denominations, mostly in the Reformed tradition, who have such a robust creedal and confessional framework that for them this is not an issue because from early on they have been catechized and informed about the true relationship of the believer to the law. This is really a problem for us. This is something that our tribe needs to settle. This is something for people like us who have been influenced and some might say infected by, for example, Arminianism or perfectionism or hyperdispensationalism, Zionism, Christian nationalism, Biblicism, pietism, just to name a few. These doctrines found their way easily into our sort of culture because of these gaping holes in the wall that opened up when churches abandoned historic confessions and they went with sort of a DIY version. And this issue comes to light, especially when we try to apply the teachings of Paul in a text like Galatians 5 and reconcile it with our understanding of justification by faith alone and the other solas of the Reformation that are so important to us. You know, I would argue that 
churches like ours are, in a sense, on the bleeding edge of this continual reformation where we have had our eyes open to the importance of reform soteriology, where we've had our eyes open to the importance of the scope and the arc of redemptive history as understood in the Holy Scriptures, where we're trying now to reconcile much of what we were brought up with, which what we now understand to be a true and better way. And this issue comes to light for people like us, and so because I'm so concerned about this church, it's why I want to preach it to you. Each of the letters, for example, that Paul wrote were to specific churches with specific issues and specific people. And because we are blessed to be here in this corporate body where your pastor speaks to you and has very little, if any, concern for who's watching online or where this goes after I speak it, you are the ones that I'm concerned about in this room within these walls, the faces I'm looking at right now, the attendees and specifically the members of Tri-City Bible Church. And I believe that it is my calling from God to take that which the Spirit of God has impressed upon my heart as needy for us and to deliver it to you with humility and urgency. And therefore, a text like this is of particular importance to us. Because on the one hand, it would seem to us that the law is very good. It's our delight to read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, and all of the various ways in which the law is extolled as good and pure and perfect and righteous and just. But on the other hand, writers like Paul, and I understand even pastors like me, seem to, and I emphasize the word seem to, present the law as somehow opposite to the gospel. It's almost as if obeying the law jeopardizes your salvation. The law becomes this corrupting agent that is to be thrown off and to be avoided. I understand that maybe some of you would, would listen to the preaching that's been going on really since Romans and through Hebrews and James and now Galatians and conclude uh, that we have become antinomianism, uh, antinomian, that, that we have adopted this idea that total absence of the law and moral restraint must be the only consequence. It's the only possible result. And I understand that someone might hear that kind of teaching and they would compare it to what they were used to in maybe a more legal context, and they would conclude that we've rejected our commitment to godliness. I mean, we've all grown up striving for holiness. We've all grown up in places where we were told what to do because that's what Christians do, or we were forbidden from something because Christians didn't do that. And maybe some of you are under the impression that we've unwittingly made a deal with the devil and exchanged our triumphant fortress of fidelity and truth for some Hollywood film set kind of propped up facades where behind those wooden structures are just lazy Christians taking their rest in Christ a little too seriously. So what is it? Why the contradiction? Well, to begin with, I think it comes from looking at the words of Jesus that are so often repeated from this pulpit, especially the fact that it says He came to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. And in fact, if you read through Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, you can see all the ways in which the law is something that Jesus says He came to fulfill. In fact, He wouldn't fulfill something that was evil or pointless, when I would He? 
In fact, from start to finish, the Scriptures clearly teach that from the moment of his birth, he was under the law, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. It was his practice to follow it with, with total obedience in every situation and in the face of any temptation so that in every way he succeeded where the first Adam failed. That was what he did all throughout his earthly ministry. He even made other people follow the law. Remember the leper that he healed in Luke chapter 5, verse 14? He cleanses the man from leprosy, and then he says, now go and show yourself to the priest. Go and do what you're supposed to do. That's the law. I'm not here to say, well, when I heal people, the law doesn't apply. You got a Jesus healing, and so you can bypass the rules. He says, no, I healed that man, and then I sent him right to the priests to go through the formal checklist that God had established in order to reinstate somebody into the theocratic nation. Jesus upheld the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. In every place the law of God demanded something, he complied. At the same time, any careful reader of the New Testament is going to notice that it was violations of the law that got Jesus in trouble all the time with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 13 is an example of that. The Pharisees were constantly dogging his path, telling him all the different ways in which he was falling short. And while occasionally, and very occasionally, Jesus would condescend to that law, normally in areas of money and taxation. Money was of such little concern for him. Taxes were of so little concern. Government-imposed regulations involving finance were of such little concern to him. He would just pay it. He would say it belongs to Caesar, give it to him. Occasionally, he'd send her disciple down and go put a hook in the water and pull out a fish, and there's a coin in its mouth. I wish he did that more often, don't you? <laughs> but that doesn't matter. He wasn't going to fight over the silly little things like that in every single occasion. There are plenty of other times where he utterly rejected what they called the law and was constantly being rebuked for it. In fact, he seems to go out of his way to frequently and even publicly ignore and flout the laws, enraging the Pharisees and setting up numerous confrontations with the religious establishment. You read the narrative of his life, and that's basically what he did. He was a, a rabble-rouser to them. He was somebody who came in and stole their authority because nobody preached like he did. He was a man of the people, and not because he degraded himself, but because he taught them the true law of God. He brought clarity to what had been deliberately concealed. But here's the problem and the solution. It's in the apparent contradiction that is found in the word law, and that applies to both the Greek word and the English word. Unfortunately, the word law is used for two things that are diametrically opposed. The word law in the New Testament is used to describe both the Mosaic law and the Rabbinic law. Mosaic law and the Rabbinic law. There's a big difference. 
The Mosaic law comes from God. The rabbinic law was designed by man to keep them from even getting close to violating God's law. The Mosaic law came from God. The rabbinic law came from man. Please note this and jot it down. To this very day, people seem to think they are improving on the law of God by making it stricter. To this very day, people think they are improving upon the law of God by making it stricter. For some context, when the Jews returned from exile as citizens of the Persian Empire after the Babylonian captivity, they had lost all their national boundaries. If you know the story of the Israeli people, the Jews, the Israelites, if you know their story from beginning through end, you'll know that there was a very important time right after the 70-year Babylonian captivity when a new ruler came in and declared himself king and by God's sovereign plan ordained that they be allowed to return to build their temple. That's very interesting. He doesn't say return and form a nation. He says return and build your temple. They came back to Jerusalem, and they built their temple, but they were always subjects of the Persians. Then they were subjects of the Greeks. Then they were subjects of the Romans, as they were at the time when Jesus preached and when Paul wrote. But it was when they first came back from exile that they had lost all their national borders in any way to distinguish themselves, and so what they did was they focused on social borders. And they became these traditions that formed a second kind of law. And, and just to be clear, I, I want to be careful here about the way we treat the Pharisees. When they began about 200 years before Jesus' ministry, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Let's give them uh, the benefit of the doubt that when they established you know, some of these laws, it was because they were speaking to a group that had lost their language, lost their religion, lost their law, lost their culture. And so they're trying to take the Jews and bring them back to what they had been prior to their captivity because of their near 500 years of disobedience to the law. You see, there was a lot of work to be done, and so maybe in their zeal, uh, they went a little overboard, and they created these ultra-strict laws to keep them far from disobeying God's law, and what happened is generation after generation after generation, the line became blurred. What's man's law? What's God's law? And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it was very difficult to tell the two apart. The rabbinic law was not civil law that we've talked about, ceremonial law, or moral law. Remember several weeks ago we talked about God's law as being the tripartite law? It's the civil, which governed the theocracy, the ceremonial, which governed the religion, and the moral, which governed the character. And it's none of these, the rabbinic law, because those three things were good. In here, the, the rabbinic law is the one that Jesus shows no compulsion to follow. He didn't need to, and neither did anyone else. His disciples, his apostles, later Paul himself, a former enforcer of these laws, never used them to impose a moral code on Christians. Now contrast that with the law of Moses. That's a very different story. Jesus perfectly kept the moral law of Moses, and he even explained in more detail the spirit behind it whenever he would teach about it. We see that in Matthew 5, 17 and following. He says, I came to fulfill the law, and then he goes and describes how. And he shows how you and I 
could fulfill it. Not just by the external letter of the law, but by the internal spirit of the law. He also followed up all the ceremonial laws and kept them right up until he fulfilled all of them, even to the point of ripping the veil in two at his death. He says, I have now completed everything that those sacrifices and those ceremonies pointed to. They need not ever again be done in order to bring one to God. Regarding the civil law, it functioned until it essentially ended, I would argue, with the Babylonian captivity, but it kind of limped along in a quasi-self-governing way that the Jews had in the time of Jesus, but that ended completely in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. So, the Mosaic law is good. The Mosaic law is good, and I reiterate that and I repeat it, and I don't back away from that. It is good. And it stands now and forever as a testimony to the character of Yahweh over against the gods of the nations. The civil theocracy was good during its time, but the kingdom of Christ is even greater. And we know that in the new earth, there will be once again God's theocratic rule over his people, and it will be good. We know that the ceremonial laws accomplished a purpose until Christ came to show that they pointed to him. And we will always look back on those as a reminder that they were a guide to him. However, the rabbinic law was nothing more than a pietistic way of controlling the people and keeping the religious elite in power. That's what Jesus hated. Jesus hated laws created by the religious elite to burden naive, well-meaning followers with laws that God didn't intend to keep them from so-called sins that he doesn't agree with our sins. This is the purpose and the contrast between Jesus and the Jewish religion. Jesus said to come to him because his yoke is easy, his burden is light in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. By that, we can imply that the yoke of the Jewish law, the yoke of the rabbinic law was brutal and harsh, and their burden was heavy. And Jesus said as much. He said, you tie these heavy burdens on these poor people when you religious leaders won't even lift a finger yourself to follow them. You're hypocrites, all of you. You're imposing a worthless system of external religious conformity on a people who don't even seem to know any better because if you had simply given them the true law of God, they would be able to discern this for themselves, but you have stolen it from them. You've pulled it back, and you have said, we don't want you to read that for yourself in case you find out what's really in there, and we lose our jobs. lest you think that could never happen again, look around and ask yourself, is that the situation in other places today? The basic truth is this. The gospel is an invitation to receive and rest. That is what our confession teaches. It is to be received and rested in. It's a call to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the finished work of Christ is sufficient for you and there is no need to add 
to the Mosaic law to somehow complete what's already done. So, why is it tempting to go back to a yoke that's not easy and a burden that crushes us? Why is that so tempting? Why even have some of you, and I know some of you have, um, come out of denominations or um, church alliances or parachurch organizations or um, maybe groups uh, like the thing that was led by a guy like, guy like Bill Gothard um, back in the 70s. Some of you probably haven't heard of him before, but uh, what about those of you who have come from that kind of stuff? What about those of you who have, who have come out of what you maybe called legalism? Probably wasn't actual legalism, maybe more fundamentalism or more pietism, but you've come out of something that is very law-based, heavy on instruction, heavy on rules. You know, there were times where, um, at the university where I serve on the board, there were, there were times where, you know, they had a very strict dress code. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember strict dress codes at colleges and stuff like that. Uh, there were times where, where Christians had misconstrued a statement in the Old Covenant forbidding idol worship that involved marking your body, and they had turned that into some rule forbidding tattoos. They, they had taken something that, that had absolutely nothing to do with the modern version of that and, and pulling it out and, and, and making it a law. This is exactly what we're talking about. Then there's a temptation on the part of some people to go under that. They view it as what's sometimes called a quote-unquote umbrella of protection, thinking that if somebody else tells me what to do, that will protect me from sinning. Legal-minded false teachers have made an industry out of this. Men and women have become very, very rich in this industry. They appeal to the weak, and they bind their consciences with man-made upgrades to the moral law of God. And they appeal to the proud, giving them a proven system for spiritual success. They are quite literally modern-day Pharisees, and Jesus would reserve his harshest words for them today as he did 2,000 years ago. So Paul's argument in our passage today, and we will get to our passage, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love our neighbors and fulfill the law. The alternative is to try and love with the power of self-discipline, a practice that has always led to foolish pride or hopeless discouragement. Praise God that he has freed us from the kind of futile effort and called us to a life of redemption through his blood. And so, brothers and sisters, the argument in the passage this morning is this. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of faith is love, and we see that by answering three questions. What's at risk? Who's to blame? And how is it resolved? What's at risk? Who's to blame? And how is it resolved? And we see this in the passage that was read to you earlier, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. If you haven't already found your way to that text, please turn there now. Number one, what's at risk? We see this in verses 1 to 6. 
If you allow your eyes to travel down to verse 5, I believe the main thrust of it is here. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of the righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. What is at risk? What's at risk is that we are going to go back to something that is nothing. The great risk is that we are going to go back to something that is nothing. We're going to try to drink salt water until we quench our thirst. We're going to go back to something that's going to put us in a worse spot than before we started. Why? Because in verse 1 we see that it was freedom that Christ has called us to, and the purpose of the freedom is to set us free. Now, you'll have to forgive him for the redundancy, but you get his point, right? He says this, for freedom in Christ has set us free. No other way to say it. What's the purpose of the freedom? It's to offer freedom. The freedom in Christ is freedom to be free. Free from everything that has been discussed up until this point in the letter. And can I just remind you, the letter was read likely in one sitting or one standing to the congregation, maybe more than once during the time they assembled. I know we tend to break it up, and already I don't like taking 10 whole weeks to go through this book. It, it shouldn't take us 10 weeks to go through this book. It only took them 15 minutes to read through it, and you would have had the concept of the entire argument. So, so go back and try, if you can, to remember everything that Paul has said leading up until this point, the illustrations he's given, the, the examples, even the allegory that he gave us. But he says, Christ has called us to freedom and stand firm, therefore… There is a pursuit in pleasing God. This isn't a let go and let God throw off all restraint. Absolutely not. He says, stand firm. Yes, there is something to do. But you stand firm in this way by not submitting again to a yoke. The yoke, remember, was the wooden piece that went around the neck of the animal or animals. The yoke itself wasn't heavy. The, the, the yoke was what kept the animal under control. The straps on either side were used to turn that animal. Instead of a bit in the mouth of a horse, you put a yoke on the back of an ox or a donkey. It was the main difference. Horses were controlled by bits and bridle. That's how you moved them. The bigger animals like oxen and the working animals like donkeys, they're the ones that you had to put a yoke around. And then they would pull, they would plow. And so here he's saying, don't go back to letting somebody put this harness on you. Because what happens is this, the moment they put a harness on you, the next thing that comes is the load. The moment you get a harness, expect a load. The moment you get a yoke put around your neck, expect that someone is going to hitch you to a wagon. And you're going to have to pull that. And that's exactly what Paul is warning these Galatians of. Oh, these Judaizers come up and they seem to be offering you something that will make the gospel even better, make you acceptable to the Jews, make you connected with the old covenant. And it seems at first like it makes sense. And so they go, here, just put this yoke on. It's okay. Just go ahead and follow the rules. Just get circumcised. It's okay. Look, we're all circumcised. We're all doing it. Just obey the dietary laws. It's okay. It's better for you anyway. You don't want to eat that pork. Bad for your heart. And they put this thing on you, and at the moment you think, oh, maybe this isn't so bad, and then chunk, hooks you up to this massive load. And they stand behind you, and they whip you, and they say, pull that load perfectly, and if you don't, you fail. If you don't, you go to hell. You see, that's always what happens when someone puts a yoke on you. 
This is why Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, because I won't put any yoke on you. Is that what he says? No. No. He doesn't say, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, because I'm going to throw the yoke away and throw the burden away, and I'm going to say, you go live whatever way you want, because it's all cool. I forgive you, because I'm gracious. You just live any way you want. Does he say that? Of course not. You can, you can shake your head together. Don't worry, there's no test here. I'm not filming it. I'm not going to call you later and say, you know, you nodded when you were supposed to shake your head. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? He doesn't throw it away. He's got a yoke too. He certainly does. Why am I not an antinomian? Because I believe what the Bible teaches, <laughs> which is that there is a yoke. And you know what? There's even a burden. But he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In fact, it's a joy. It's a guide. It's not received as a crushing load, but it's actually received as something that, that we are honored to carry as a way of pleasing Him and distinguishing ourselves as those who are adopted by God. And so He says then, do not accept circumcision or anything else, because if you do that, you're taking their yoke and their burden instead of Christ. He's going to be of no advantage to you. And this relates to that free grace of justification. What is offered to you in Christ is not going to be available if you choose another path. It doesn't say that everything Christ has done is now going to be obliterated. I mean, what do you do for the guy in the Galatian house church meeting in that region, in that Roman province that is being written to you? What do you do with the guy who's already been circumcised? What do you do with the guy who was circumcised earlier that week? And then the letter comes, and he's thinking, man, I wish this had come earlier. What have I done? Have I blown it? Have I, have I, have I ruined this whole thing, this whole gospel thing, because I went and bought into what those guys were telling me? He says, no, don't worry. Don't worry. There's hope. I'm just clarifying that if you go after them and their way, Christ and his way is of no advantage to you. In fact, he says, if you go their way, here's the problem. You're going to put a yoke on, and you're going to put a burden on, and you're going to be obligated to keep the whole law, verse 3. What does that mean? People are fond of saying it this way, personally, perfectly, perpetually. You yourself need to keep that law absolutely perfectly, absolutely perfectly, absolutely every moment of your life. Who's prepared to take that on? No one. Paul says, if anyone was willing to take that on, it was me, I tried, I failed. The law, as was mentioned to you earlier, was a minister of death. And that doesn't make it bad. It makes it beautiful because it points us to Christ, who is the minister of life. He says to these, you are severed from Christ. Again, not by losing your salvation. That's not what the Bible ever teaches, but by choosing another gospel. You're not choosing Christ. You who would be justified by the law, because you cannot be justified by the law. You then have fallen away from grace. Not that you have lost your salvation. You have fallen away from and you have chosen a pathway that isn't grace. Grace is the embracing of a gospel through Christ. The works of the law is embracing a man-made plan to earn it by works. That's all he's saying. So don't allow anybody who has adopted an Arminian position on the security of the believer to use this verse against you. That is a false doctrine. 
and it's been prevalent in various times throughout church history. And they have not lost their salvation. They have instead, some of them, chased after a gospel that is not true. Verse 5, 4, through the Spirit. This is regeneration, everybody. You aren't saved by signing a card or praying a prayer or repenting of your sin. That is not what makes you a new creature. What makes you alive, what brings life to your dead heart and soul is regeneration, and that is only done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I repeat that? It is a work that is only done by the Holy Spirit. You can't do it yourself, and you can't do it for somebody else. Only God can bring life to what is dead. Like in that story of the dry bones, remember? Where the prophet preaches and the bones begin to rattle and then come together and then tissue is put on them and then the Spirit of God literally breathes life into them. That's a picture of it. Before you were saved, you were nothing but dry, scattered bones. That's how dead you were. You weren't just confused or sick. You were dead, decayed, and spread around. And by the Holy Spirit, you were brought to the place of understanding so that you could exercise the gift of faith given to you and the repentance given to you and everything else that goes along. It's not that we don't believe those things, but you have to get the order right. And so he says that through the Spirit, by regeneration, by faith leading to our justification, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, can I just again don't mean to beat up the translations all the time, but there's just no other way to put it. The word hope is woefully inadequate because when we use the word hope, we mean I hope something will happen and maybe it won't. Here, it's not hope in that way. Here, it is absolute certainty. You could translate that, and because that's what it meant to the original hearers, we ourselves eagerly await for the absolute certainty of righteousness, the glorification we'll receive when that righteousness that clothes us is made real at the resurrection. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Any level of external conformity to the law does not prove or disprove that you're regenerate. He doesn't say to the circumcised, well, you've messed up and you can never be saved. He doesn't say to the uncircumcised, you must. He says, no, whether you are or aren't, stop even worrying about that. Just stop it. Pitch that whole conversation out the window. All that matters is that you understand that it is by faith working through love. It is by faith in Christ that all of this is gauged. Look, he says that only by faith working through love. That's faith love. That's love that comes from faith, not love that is generated by you. The evidence then of regenerating faith is love, not law. When you're regenerated and you have faith, it results in love, not law. God doesn't regenerate you, save you, and then confine you to this external restriction in order to prove your faithfulness. No, he says that there is a freedom that comes from that faith, and it's a freedom to love. Faith working through love. Are there works attached to faith? Absolutely. But they're worked out through love. Love is the defining characteristic of this entire section. The spirit of love is the focus. So what's at risk? Everything we just discussed. Your true understanding of the gospel and the working out of it in love. Number two, who's to blame? Well, Paul goes to war against those who would hinder our progress here, trouble our hearts, make us doubt the assurance we have in our king. 
Look at what he says, and he's not holding back. He says, for you were running well. Isn't that great? I love Paul's encouragement. He's not mad at the Galatians. Paul's mad at the false teachers, but he's not mad at the Galatians. Beloved, if I ever seem mad at you, call me up and tell me. I mean it. Say, you know what, John? Last week, you seemed really mad at me. I had a dear friend tell me that recently. She told me I was doing a little too much scolding. And I received that from the Lord. You know, there are times where I, I, I wish that things were a little bit different in certain areas of our church, and I, I can maybe come across as a little bit of a curmudgeon. I am a curmudgeon by nature, by the way. I'm kind of an old soul curmudgeon. So when I'm up here, I try to, like, loosen up and not be that way. But I guess things are serious to me. I don't know. I just, I have a harder and harder time laughing about stuff as I get older. I just, there's so much on the line, so much at stake, so much that I think that we, we really could be maybe doing better. But I don't mean to scold you. I'm not angry with you. I love you. I love this church. I love those of you who are part of it. I love watching the way that God has done an amazing work in so many of your lives. I love seeing how some of you are coming in here from other contexts and you're, you're learning and growing and, and you're just devouring truth. It's a wonderful blessing for me to be here. I think Paul is saying the same thing to this Galatian church. He's, he's baffled and confused and, 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 and concerned sometimes, but he's not angry. And he says, you were running well. Who cut into you, literally? Who, who, who cut in? Who interrupted your progress? Who cut you off? When it says here, hindered you, it's, it's literally the word cut into. Who cut into you from obeying the truth? It's like you're driving along the freeway and you're going in the right direction and someone cuts you off. I mean, what could make you more angry than being cut off? Now I'm explaining some of my own weaknesses, aren't I? My wife tells me, honking at that person is not going to help. I say, it helps me. <laughs> you ever have that? Someone cuts you off, and then, of course, you, because you're a Christian, have to cut them off at some point in the future. <laughs> or you pull off into the lane beside them, and you drive up right beside them, and you, and you look over at them, and you just think, figures, don't you? <laughs> I do that. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Who cut in? Who cut you off? You, you, you were going in the right direction. You, you, you were following Christ and the gospel, and someone cut off that progress from obeying the truth, being the way that the disciples are truly known and marked out. Joyful obedience in an effort to please our Savior should define you as a Christian. They were obeying the truth, they were doing the right thing, and somebody cut in, somebody cut them off. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This isn't something that came from God. God who irresistibly calls you through the Holy Spirit. It does not call you to, to this kind of obedience to the law. Being persuaded that you must obey the law contrasted with obeying the truth is here, and therefore it can't come from God. It's literally demonic to try to obey your way into God's favor. And notice that it can spread. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is not exclusively negative in the Scriptures, but here it is. It spreads. That, that's why it has to be cut off immediately when you sense it, when you see it, when you identify it. In the church, in Bible studies, in ministries, when there is a, 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 a tincture of legal approach, then you need to address it. And he says, I've got to get rid of this. And then again, very complimentary of them, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. Again, he's very positive of these Galatians. 
I, I'm convinced you'll do better. And the one who is troubling you needs to agitate, to stir up. We see this in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 10 of the same letter. To agitate you, stir you up. It means you've got no peace. The first thing they do is they hinder you, you've got no progress. The second thing they do is trouble you, you've got no peace. That person will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And I don't know if this means whoever he is, as in like, I don't know who he is, or whoever he is, even though he's really important, even though everyone thinks they ought to follow him because of everything he's done and, and whatever. He's like a, a super apostle, he's a celebrity. I don't know what he means. Either he doesn't know, or he says it doesn't matter who. Either way, I think both are true. He says, it doesn't matter, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, which is probably what these guys were saying about Paul. They said, follow us, get circumcised. And they go, why? Paul didn't tell us that. And they go, oh, yeah, he believes that, sure. Maybe they're lying about it. They've been deceiving people. He says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Persecuted by who? Persecuted by the Jews and his fellow Pharisees who thought that he's just left the reservation. There is no more bitter group of people than the ones that you used to be a part of but have left. Your enemies who were never part of that group are easier on you than the people that you have left. They tend to come at you even with more intensity. And this is what Paul was experiencing from those Pharisees. They would love to kill him, many times plotted to kill him. Why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The cross was the central point, Christ and Him crucified. Why every week at this church do we sing the same kind of songs, read the same kind of scriptures, preach the same kind of sermons, have the same kind of call to worship, same kind of benediction? Why are we constantly talking about Christ and His finished work? Because the cross and Christ crucified is the only message that we have. It's the message of the Bible. It's the message of salvation. It was Paul's only message. And so he says to them, that I wish those who unsettled you. This is the third thing that they've done. They've hindered them, which means there's no progress. They've troubled them, which means there's no peace. And they've unsettled them, which means there's no assurance. It's the word that is translated elsewhere to riot. They've caused you to riot inside, to fight back against this truth of the gospel. He says, I wish that the people who have done that to you would emasculate themselves. You want to preach circumcision? Fine, go all the way. Yeah, I know. You're like, wow, glad the kids aren't here this week. You won't have to explain that in the car on the way home. Yeah, it's blunt. Except it's not blunt, it's pretty sharp. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Mixing metaphors. Yeah, it's meant to get your attention. I know, some of you were thinking, I'm only coming for this week because I want to hear what does he say about this. You know what it means. And yeah, Paul is saying that. Paul's throwing down. It's like, Psh, fine, you want to do that? Go all the way, pal. Better that. That would, that would teach a lesson, wouldn't it? That would show where this really goes. And so he says, they've unsettled you. Well, who's to blame? These people that are teaching that you need to add circumcision or any law to the gospel. It's your progress, your peace, and it's your assurance that are at stake. Anyone who cuts into you with anything that agitates you, that makes you doubt your position in Christ, 
accepts you based on what you do or don't do, or would cause you to revolt against those who invite you to rest in Christ. Those are the ones that Paul brings this judgment down upon. What's at risk? Who's to blame? Finally, how is it resolved? We're just going to briefly touch on this because it is the blasting cap for everything we'll talk about next week. How is it resolved? 13 to 15. For you, we're called to freedom, brothers, as he said at the very beginning. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Like we need to say this, he says, again, I'm not an antinomian. I'm not saying holiness doesn't matter. I'm not saying you stop striving. I'm not saying that you don't wrestle. I'm just saying you don't wrestle to earn something. Instead, when you work, when your faith works itself out, you work out in this way. Notice what he says, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. Don't serve yourself. Is it possible to do good works to the glory of God? I hope so. I mean, that's the whole basis of your sanctified life, isn't it? That's a whole basis of fruitfulness and growing in maturity. That's the distinction between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit that we'll get into next week. Because, verse 14 summarizes it, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if he had started with that, love your neighbor as yourself, and obey it to be saved, that would have been preaching law. And no one can do it personally, perfectly, perpetually, and that would have been a damning message. But now, speaking about it, after we understand regeneration, faith in Christ, the works that come from the power of the Holy Spirit, he can say, yes, do that. It is law. It is God's law. But I'm delivering it to you not as merit to be earned, but as obedience to be shown, gratitude to be shown. But on the contrast, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. It's a good warning. The opposite of loving and serving one another is loving and serving yourself. The person who loves and serves themselves will prey off other people. They will devour other people. In fact, they will consume the very people that they are supposed to protect. And brothers and sisters, God has called, for example, pastors and elders to be shepherds who tend the flock, not eat the flock. Spiritual leaders are meant to serve the flock and protect the flock, not fleece the flock and feast on the flock. And you need to ask yourself the question, what is my relationship to those who I would place over me in the Lord? So how is it resolved? Well, the love that comes from faith fulfills the law by serving others as Christ would in the power of the Holy Spirit. Relying on the law then is different from obeying the law. Relying on the law to save is very different than obeying the law to serve. I love the beautiful song that we have sung here before, John Newton's writing partner. They served together in Olney when John Newton was a pastor there. And this man battling depression, mental illness, suicide, pronounced William Cooper is his name. Wonderful song. 
It was originally a poem, went like this. What shall I do was then the word that I might worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. And as we've told you before, that then and now was the contrast. Back then, before I knew the gospel, I was always asking the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? And brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, I'm always concerned about people, even in our own body, who are obsessed with what do I do? What do I do? Give me the imperatives. Give me the list. I, I don't like this church. There's not enough application. By that, they mean there's not a list afterwards. There's not all these things that I can measure my performance against. It's not always an indication that they don't understand the gospel, but it's often an indication. Cooper said, I didn't understand the gospel when I was always asking, what do I do? What do I do? That was my word then. But now I realize I'm not growing worthier by what I do. Instead, I just ask, what can I render to the Lord out of joyful gratitude? Because to see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. The hope of the gospel is this. The Holy Spirit produces faith. Regeneration, as we said, is what precedes faith. And then faith as a gift that comes from God alone secures one's justification. You are right and just in His eyes. And the Holy Spirit produces fruit. The indwelling Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see very soon. The very first one mentioned is what? Love. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word this morning and for reminding us of what is at stake, who it is that we should be weary of and warned about, and how all of it is resolved in a simple understanding and embracing of the truth of the gospel. Father, as we sing these last few songs, I ask that we would be reminded of the then and now of our walk with you. Search our hearts today and uh, remind us and bring to our attention if we are living as those who, through some sort of external work, are trying to earn merit or favor with you. And instead, make us into a people just as determined to obey but for the right reason, and bathed in gospel assurance every time we fail. In your name we pray. Amen.